Well, this is the second episode of MO Forum. For this episode, we've invited people who are on Twitter, uh, Facebook, and even email to contact us with what they consider to be the important issues for progressive thinking in the 21st century. Uh, thanks to everyone who has contributed. Uh, it's been both a strong and very diverse response, and I want to address some of the key issues that have been raised uh, by you. And the idea then is to develop them further as single standalone MO Forum episodes. So this is to traverse the territory of the issues that you consider are the important issues for uh, progressive thinkers in the 21st century. So we'll get straight into it. And the first is actually a cluster of issues. And they're around uh, climate change and related issues of population, food, uh, water, availability, and energy. So I'll deal with them in the one group. Uh, later in this month, in the last remaining days of September, the fifth report of the International Panel on Climate Change will be released. And it's already clear that that report will have even more alarming uh, projections about the impact of uh, human-induced climate change on uh, sea levels and on the uh, prevalence of floods, of droughts, uh, of bushfires. It is very, very concerning. And for people on the conservative side to suggest that we should wait and do nothing because uh, the science of climate change is not yet settled, uh, is extremely disappointing to say the very least and I think a, a betrayal of the interests of future generations. If we're going to wait until the, there's not one scientist on earth who has a view contrary to that of those who are very worried about climate change, we'll be waiting a very long time and doing nothing in the meantime would be a tragedy. Uh, so the response with a bit of irony here of the progressive side of politics to this issue has been an emissions trading scheme, that is to deploy the market to uh, find the best alternatives to fossil fuels um, through the pricing mechanisms. Uh, it's interesting, isn't it, that the progressive side of politics argues for a market-based solution and the conservative side of politics argues for a centrally planned command and control system. Here in Australia, the progressive side of politics is implemented through the parliament and emissions trading scheme. And the uh, conservatives are saying they will remove that altogether and replace it with so-called direct action. Now, this is a centrally planned scheme where Canberra would tell businesses uh, that it knows best and it would actually give them money to do various things. In other words, um, uh, instead of having the market work it out, um, technocrats in Canberra would do so. And I do find this in the post-war ideological battles between uh, central planning and markets, that it is ironic that the progressive side says, let's go with markets, and the conservative side says, no, we'll go with central planning, and indeed we'll limit the amount of expenditure to $3.2 billion, which analysis has shown wouldn't go anywhere near achieving the bipartisan par target of 5% uh, emissions reductions by 2020 
on 2000 levels. So really it is uh, the spending of $3.2 billion to achieve precious little. Uh, there are on the conservative side people who do believe in markets, Malcolm Turnbull does, uh, and indeed John Howard uh, designed an emissions trading scheme, but the present government uh, says that it will repeal that as quickly as possible. So look out for that international panel on climate change. We do need to address this issue. We needed to address it years ago. Uh, the, t the clock is ticking and future generations and indeed the entire ecology of the earth depend on an effective response through a market-based mechanism. But that brings in the related issues of population growth in the world. Uh, last year, there were 7 billion people on Earth. The 7 billionth baby was born. Uh, by 2050, there'll be 9 billion. So this is a massive increase over a relatively short period of time. Uh, we will need to be able to feed those 9 billion people and that itself will have its own ecological impacts, particularly as climate change changes the um, rainfall patterns around the world. A uh, huge challenge for policymakers and the community more generally. Food security itself uh, is shaping up as perhaps the defining issue of the first quarter of the uh, uh, 21st century, if not beyond. Back in 2008, there were food riots, uh, and in fact, food shortages or very high prices were a catalyst for the so-called uh, Arab Spring. Now, this is going to be a real issue with countries in our own region, uh, the middle classes are expanding. There'll be three billion middle class customers in our own region by 2030. Now, this food production task could be seen as a threat, uh, but I see it as an opportunity for a country like Australia to be able to contribute to a great humanitarian effort, but also revive rural and regional Australia. So there's a big agenda for progressive policy makers and thinkers in this area of food production. You can't produce food without water. And people talk about peak oil. Uh, I think that there isn't really uh, so much an issue of peak oil, but how expensive it gets. There's plenty of oil in various places uh, inside the Earth's crust, but the uh, the question is how uh, expensive is it to extract? Whereas with water, there are two problems. One, that is that we're extracting water from aquifers at a faster rate, much faster rate than they're being replenished. A lot of that water is, uh, was deposited uh, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of years ago, and it's been extracted very quickly. And second, there's the issue of water pollution, water quality. There's plenty of water around the world. It's just not necessarily all in for humans, the right places, and even where it is in the right places, sometimes it's heavily polluted, causing disease um, because it's undrinkable. So again, a huge issue for progressive thinkers in the 21st century. So that's a cluster of issues around uh, climate change, population, food, water, and of course, energy and the search for alternative energy sources um, so that we do mitigate uh, some of the worst impacts of climate change. Moving on now, uh, a large number of uh, suggestions that came in were around the issue of education and equality of opportunity, an issue very dear to my heart. Uh, uh, last uh, MO Forum, I recited Martin Luther's uh, uh, statement from his speech where he said, I had a dream that my four little children would grow up in a world 
where they are judged not by the colour of their skin but by the content of their character. And that encapsulates the whole issue of discrimination and disadvantage, the lack of opportunity for people from disadvantaged backgrounds, and that is a huge issue here in Australia, so much so that uh, David Gonski was asked to chair a committee to look at a needs-based funding model for school education in Australia. Uh, that did pass uh, through the Australian Parliament before the last election. Um, the new incoming coalition government has said that at least for four years it will um, uh, comply with and implement that legislation. I hope that is the case because uh, right around our country disadvantage can easily be traced back to the lack of a quality education for all young people, whether they are Indigenous, whether they are kids from low socioeconomic backgrounds, whether they are children from non-English speaking backgrounds, uh, whether they are in remote areas, uh, or indeed whether they have disabilities. These are the five uh, indicators by which extra funding would flow to those schools with kids that have one or more of those disadvantages. It's a great reform, it truly is, an education revolution and we should all get behind it because if we do believe in equality of opportunity, we must believe in a quality education for all. That extends to universities as well and uh, we have in place in Australia what's called a demand-driven system which replaced another centrally planned mechanism of the previous Conservative government and that is under that previous system Governments, that is technocrats in Canberra, would allocate how many university places there were for each university and indeed each course. Uh, this was described by an economics professor, Max Corden, as Moscow on the Molongolo, this centrally planned command and control system, whereas Prime Minister Julia Gillard brought in a different system, a demand-driven system, where universities uh, would enrol as many students as they saw fit to enrol and this has led to a big change positively in favour of kids from disadvantaged backgrounds. Now uh, since the change of government the new education minister Christopher Pine foreshadowed that he will revisit that and interestingly uh, the new Prime Minister Tony Abbott has said that there is no pressing need to um, revisit the issue of uh, compulsory student fees and I hope he means also the issue of the demand-driven system, because this is giving kids who are the first in their families ever to go to university the opportunity to do so, and very large numbers are doing so. So again, if we believe in equality of opportunity on the progressive side, we believe in the demand-driven system, and we say no to the centrally planned Moscow and the Molongolo system, which is based on privilege, entrenched privilege and advantage, and doesn't seek to address problems of disadvantage. Now, uh, another set of issues that has been raised, uh, I think more out of frustration than anything about the media and media reporting. Uh, let's call it the 24-hour news cycle. I did a piece on this uh, last Christmas. And yes, there is bias in the media, and uh, that's you know, unfortunate. There's no doubt about that. Um, but on the progressive side, if I can say, that what I'm doing here, and has been repeating, repeated all around Australia and the world, may well be a partial response to that. And that is, hit social media, reach people directly, don't have to worry about 
going through media proprietors and media editors, having your information um, modified, the headline inserted over the top, the first paragraph changed. I'm speaking to you directly and I think we need to do more of that. What it means is that the whole media around the world is becoming atomized, whereas the big organizations are relatively less important now than they were before. I think that's a good thing for democracy so that we don't have the domination of one or two people's views uh, being expressed or permeated through the way that the media reports on issues. Let's report to each other directly, face to face, using MO Forum and the multitude of other forums that are available increasingly around the world through social media. Um, I think there's a big issue that didn't actually get uh, a lot of um, response, but I want to raise this one for future consideration, and that is for progressive thinking in relation to uh, privacy and security. By this I mean the increasing prevalence of um, uh, closed-circuit television cameras and other mechanisms for being able to trace where people have been and what they've been doing. Now, on the positive side of that, uh, crimes are being solved, and we've seen some horrific crimes that have been solved in the case of Jill Ma, um, uh, aided by closed-circuit television and even the location of mobile telephones. Um, and we don't know how many uh, terror plots may have been foiled through uh, that sort of information or through the authorised interception of conversations. On the other hand, is the argument that there is going to be no more liberty or privacy, that there will be governments and uh, government authorities that will be able to record and trace everyone's movement. Now, um, which way, which, where do we fall? Should there be safeguards? Should there be more privacy or should there be more use of this sort of information so that we can live in a safer and more secure world? I think that's a great debate, a very important debate as we move into the early decades of the 21st century. Another one of those um, big defining debates, I think, is, to put it simply, the issue of immortality. Uh, we now have already uh, medical procedures that wouldn't have been contemplated 10 or 15 years ago, but we're just at the beginning of um, medical procedures um, based on the human genome and all the research that's come out of that gen genetics more generally that mean that in future, instead of very invasive surgery using scalpels and stitches and all the um, gory stuff that goes with that, that we will be able to renew uh, diseased organs, livers, hearts, and so on. Um, you'd think, and I think, that's a good thing. Uh, but what it does mean is, barring getting run over by a bus, people will live to a very long age. Uh, at the beginning of the 20th century, the average age life expectancy was probably under 60. It's now over 80. So another 20 years on average put on people's lives. The number of people over uh, 100 is going to uh, really increase dramatically in the next few years. But if these techniques um, do prove as fruitful as it appears, uh, we will be able to replace diseased organs and therefore, um, through further research, have people live for very, very long periods of time. 
So this will compound the ageing of the population and you have a smaller working age population uh, earning the income, paying the taxes to support the older population will probably be working longer rather than the idea of um, starting at say 20 in the early 20s and retiring at 60. People will uh, work longer. But again, in terms of a very human-centric view, isn't it the sign of a healthy society that people are living longer? But if they are, and we do accept these marvellous technologies, how do we deal with the ageing of the population so that not only are people living longer, but they are happier while they are alive? Big issue here. And there's a related issue about which I need to learn much more that's encapsulated in the phrase, the silicon man. Increasingly, there will be um, uh, non-human material inserted into uh, the human body. And there is a group of people who are thinking about the capacity of that to learn you know, artificial intelligence and to effectively evolve faster than the natural evolution of the human being. Now, this is in, in one sense quite scary, but in another one where we really ought to be getting ahead of these developments and having a proper community debate about them uh, and if the progressive thinkers of the world can lead that, that will be a good thing. And I would like to see if I can get someone on MA Forum to talk about that. Finally, uh, amongst the uh, issues that have been raised, I got a question last week, and it was from Graham Ritchie, and he said, what is the most crucial issue in the livability of Australians that is not prominent in the current political discourse? Uh, I didn't answer that because I forgot. Uh, so I'm going to answer it now, and it's a surprise answer, and that is child abuse. Uh, I have said about animal welfare that uh, we can't consider ourselves to be a humane society if we treat um, uh, our creatures inhumanely. Similarly, even perhaps more emphatically, we can't consider ourselves to be a humane society if we treat our children cruelly. And the fact is, so many children are being treated cruelly behind closed doors. The relevant authorities, uh, the community services departments, don't have the staff to deal with this. And I think we still need to change community attitudes because underlying it, there is a little bit of a sense of what goes on behind closed doors isn't the business of the broader community. Well, it is when it involves uh, cruel treatment of little kids because they are defenceless and they have rights too. Surely everyone in our society has rights and you'd think that people would agree that children especially have rights and those rights are deprived when they are abused and treated very badly and cruelly. The issue of same-sex marriage uh, did uh, come up quite a bit with your contributions through Twitter and Facebook. Uh, again, this is an issue that I think um, is very important in the progressive world. I think uh, it's likely that there will be a continue to be a diversity of views, even in the progressive spectrum. Within, for example, the Australian Labor Party, there's a diversity of views. Um, but it raises this issue. Can we have, when in the progressive side of politics, a range of different views on particular issues and still be regarded as progressives? Now, my view is yes. Uh, I think that for two reasons. One, you know, the idea of uh, tolerate, tolerating different views and still um, being, if you like, in unity or kindred spirits. And two, 
the fact that the competition in the contest of ideas is on the conservative side, where they do seem to do that, um, where they have a very broad uh, diversity of views, even going out to the hard right, and they have shown a unity of purpose that perhaps on the progressive side we haven't. So then it breaks down into Labor and Greens and uh, and so on, and we aren't presenting to the community as the sort of um, united force that nevertheless contains a diversity of opinions. I'm just putting out that out there as um, a possibility for people to think about um, marriage equality as an issue. It will continue to be debated. It's not going to go away. And that's a good thing. I think these sorts of debates should continue. <coughs> a little cough there, and I will say in closing that, um, uh, as I said at the outset, the idea here is to get one or a uh, particular topic that we've covered today and even some others, and then to go into more detail and perhaps have guest uh, appearances here on MO Forum. I look forward to doing that with you. I've enjoyed this. and. Please get ready for episode three of MO Forum. Bye now.